don't know after that worship I don't feel like I have a whole lot to say so we'll see (laughs) actually you know the Lord kind of laid a little something on my heart today and then Sarah got up to transition and touched on it and then Miss Bonnie kept touching on it and I was like well they keep going I'm not gonna have to say a word (laughs) you know God's just so good there's there's times I think when you get up here and you're kind of ready to say something. And then there's other times you get up here and you're like, what, what do I have to add to what he's already done? You know? Yeah, let's just look at him just for a minute or two. So I don't really have a uh, articulate message for you tonight. I'm just gonna just gonna share from my heart and talk a little bit about my journey with the Lord and some of the things He's taught me, and we'll see we'll see where we go. But you know, Pastor Sarah talked a little bit about you know the Lord's perspective. And coming to that place of really seeing our life and seeing him rightly. And I think coming to that place of seeing him rightly is one of the most valuable, valuable moments you can ever experience. Because when you see him rightly, you see the way he's looking at you and it changes everything. Because, you know, we'll spend so much of our lives in shame and in condemnation and in self-pity, anger, fear. All these emotions that the enemy wants to bind us up in. And sometimes we get so caught up in our own perspective that we think God's like us instead of remembering that we're made to be like him but then when we see him rightly we realize he's not looking at us with anger or shame or condemnation or disgust he's not looking at us and seeing what we've done 
He's looking at us and seeing what he's done. See, he looks at us and he sees a blood-stained cross. And he sees where all the sin and shame of the world was already nailed to one man. See, it was already dealt with a long, long time ago. That thing you did that keeps you up at night, it was nailed to the cross 2,000 years ago. Jesus bore the sin and shame, so you didn't have to. But see, the enemy wants to keep you in that place of focusing on what you've done. Because so long as you're focused on what you've done, you'll never really do anything worth doing. Because you'll always limit yourself by the lens of the past instead of stepping into the freedom of your future. And that's why I want to talk to you a little bit tonight about the valley of the shadow of death. And really eradicating fear. Because I think when it comes down to it, if we looked at the root issue in the world, it comes down to fear. When you get to the root of someone's anger, it's always rooted in fear. Fear of loss, fear of rejection, fear of pain. If you get down to selfishness, it's rooted in fear. Meanness is rooted in fear. It's all, I'm telling you, if you really sit down and get to the root of a person's problem, it is always rooted in fear. And if you get down to the root of someone's freedom, it's always found in love. And that's why fear and love are really the two opposing forces. And it's only the perfect love of the Lord that casts out fear. And the world will offer you sort of these bandaged temporary solutions, these 10-step programs. They'll keep you busy. I mean, look at, you know, look at Hollywood. Look at the affluent people in the world. They spend their whole lives striving for acceptance, for power, for money, for prestige. But really, the root of it is they're afraid of being inconsequential. And so they'll sell their soul to something that never satisfies. While we were singing that song right there at the end, I was thinking, um, if you're familiar with Amber Twig, we were just looking at her, her merch the other day, and she has a shirt that I, I love. It says, Oh Jesus, the sound one makes when fully satisfied. And I thought, how true is that? Because the moment when you say, oh, Jesus, you're so full, it's like nothing else really matters. Nothing else comes in. Nothing else has a place. But it's when we take our eyes off him that everything else crowds in. So I just want to read Psalm 23, and then 
kind of elaborate a little bit more. And I know it's a familiar psalm, but it's one of my favorites. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What I love is you see a transition in this psalm. David knew the heart of God so well. But you see almost an encounter that's penned in these pages. You see, he, he knows the Lord as shepherd, as provider, as a place of rest, as a place of stillness, the place of green grass, the place of still water. But then David walks through a very specific place, the valley of the shadow of death. And you notice his writing changes. It goes from talking about the Lord in third person. He is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. He this, he this. To this direct conversation with the Lord. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. This place, this valley, so shifts David's whole perspective. It so shifts and changes everything in his life that he can no longer even talk about the Lord in this third-person kind of way. He has to begin to pen this psalm directly to the Lord. He has to. There's something about this place. So what is it about the valley that so transforms a man who already knows the heart of God? We're not talking about the sinner to saint conversion. We're not talking about the point of salvation. We're not talking about a moment where you come to the cross, as beautiful as that is. We're talking about a man who already knew the heart of God in an intimate way, so radically shifting and changing that the very way he writes changes. And I think it's because the valley so hems you in, you have no other place to look than to God. Because, see, we all come across valleys in life. We never plan for them. Not a single one of us, if we had a say in the blueprint of our life, would plan to walk through a valley. Some of us are content to just walk on the, the flat way, you know, Keep me to the plain. I don't need the mountain. I don't want the valley. Some of us are always chasing the next mountain. I want the next goal. I want the next crazy encounter. I want the next adventure. But I've never heard a single person say, I can't wait for the next valley. But something happens in the valley that never happens on the mountain. 
Something happens in the valley that never happens on the plain. The valley is the place of deepest brokenness. But it's the place of deepest breakthrough. Because you notice it says the valley of the shadow of death. And in that place, I think sometimes we face our greatest fears. I know some of the valleys I've walked through, to be honest, 2021 at times has felt like a really big valley. (laughs) And there's been times where I'm like, oh, we're out of the valley, praise God. And then it's like, oh, no, (laughs) no, we're still here. But see, often in the valley, it will seem like every promise the Lord has ever given you will never come to pass. Because it's the valley of the shadows. And the thing about darkness is sometimes it's hard to remember how bright the light really is when you're in the dark. Sometimes darkness is so consuming that you can forget how bright the light really is. You come into this place where it's like, God, where are you? And in that place, the enemy likes to talk really loud. And I've noticed sometimes the Lord likes to talk very quietly. And we begin to have these moments where it's easy to start to doubt. Because the enemy's there. He loves the shadows. The enemy's favorite place to live is what if land. And he wants to take you there. See, the enemy doesn't want you to walk through the valley. The enemy wants you to actually abide in the shadows of death. See, the Lord has told us to abide under the shadow of his wings. So we're never promised a lack of shadows, but we're told which shadows to sit under and which shadows to walk through. The shadows of the Lord give protection and guidance. They're actually a place of nurturing and growing. The shadows the enemy wants you to abide in are a place that will rob you of your promise. Man, there's people that sit paralyzed in these places because they're too afraid to take a step forward. Because the enemy has them so convinced if they move forward, they're going to miss out on everything. The enemy has them so convinced if God really loved you, you wouldn't be in this place to begin with. You're in this place because of everything you've ever done wrong. You're in this place because you've messed up so badly that God can't redeem your story. And we believe him sometimes. And we sit in that place and we start to complain and we start to ask God, where are you? God, you said this, and you promised me this, and I thought this, and I thought it was going to look like this, and I thought it was going to feel like this, and I thought, I thought, I thought, I thought, I thought. And oftentimes, the Lord will be really quiet. It's like what happened to Job. Job was really quiet until Job kind of reached his limit, and then Job began to question God and complain against God and rail against God, And the Lord let him talk and talk and talk and talk and talk until Job ran out of air. 
when Job finally decided that he was tired of hearing himself speak and he was ready to listen, then the Lord spoke. But see, the Lord didn't actually answer any of Job's questions. The Lord didn't say, Job, I understand you've been in a rough season. Job, your life hasn't been fair. Job, the enemy is actually tormenting you right now, but I'm about to bring your biggest breakthrough. No, what did God do? He reminded Job of who he was. And what he does. The creator of the universe reminded the creation that the world is in his hands. And I've found that so often to be true. I'm asking God all these questions, all these demands. And the Lord lets me talk until I run out of air. (laughs) And then he reminds me of who he is. And see, we think it's not comforting. We're like, that, how does that help? But it actually does because, see, when he's the one that's holding us, he's also holding on to those promises. When we remember him as the faithful one, we remember that he's watching over his word to perform it. And it often... <laughs> It never happens the way we think it is going to because we don't factor in the valleys. We don't factor in when the word of the Lord is going to be tested. We don't factor in when our faith will be tried. We don't factor in when we're going to be broken. But see, sometimes when we're broken, it actually is breaking things off of us because we can take the word of the Lord and we begin to dilute it. Oh, the Lord says I'm going to be blessed. Well, some people take that and say, the Lord says I'm going to own a Lamborghini. And the Lord says, I don't actually remember saying that. (laughs) And that's an exaggerated example, but I've watched people do it. They're so discontent that the Lord hasn't fulfilled their wish list for their life that they're actually missing out on the destiny he's calling them to walk in. Like I've watched people make themselves miserable because they don't have a spouse or they don't have a certain car or they don't have a certain house or they don't have a certain job. And the whole time the Lord's going, the promised land is right here. But like the Israelites, we'd rather walk around and complain about everything we had and about everything our neighbors had and we want to keep up with the Joneses instead of taking on the kingdom of heaven. You know, the Lord says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you know what that poor in spirit actually means? Many people will say it means humble or meek, but it doesn't actually. If you read that whole sermon, there's a reward for the humble and meek. It's in there, but poor in spirit is a different promise. Poor in spirit means to literally possess nothing. It means you live life with a completely open hand. Uh, A.W. Tozer refers to it as the blessed art of possessing nothing. It's the Abraham anointing. It's where you have your promised son in front of you and you're willing to put him on the altar because you trust the promiser more than the promise. Jesus. And when you let go of everything, 
you actually begin to possess everything because then the Lord can trust you with the kingdom because you're not going to try to take it and use it for your own purposes. You're actually just going to be so adhered to him that you don't actually care about the rest of it. You care about it because he cares about it, but it's not about your personal gain. It's no longer about your personal satisfaction. It's no longer about your personal prestige. It's all about finding your full satisfaction, your full life in him. And then, man, you're just running after Jesus so hard that you don't care what's on the left and on the right. But sometimes he's got to hem you into that place of reminding you who he is. Like the thing about the valley is there's one way in and there's one way out. The valley will hem you in on every side. It'll, he'll put you in the steepest, deepest, darkest valley if it means that your eyes will turn to him. You know, why does it say, I look to the hills from where my help comes from? Because <laughs> there's nothing to the left. There's nothing to the right. There's nothing behind you. There's only him. That's the beauty of the valley is when you stop bemoaning where you're at and you stop drowning in your cup of water and you stop moaning and groaning about all the things you don't have and all the things that you left behind you in Egypt, man, you look to him and suddenly you see the splendor of the kingdom of heaven that's promised to you. It's why Jesus could be promised all the kingdoms of the earth and say, no, are you kidding me? Why would I take the splendor of the earth when the splendor of heaven is mine? Why would I take the prestige of man when the love and adoration of the Father is mine? See, Jesus didn't pass up earth because he knew he had to go to the cross. Jesus passed up earth because he already knew he had all of earth and all of heaven and all of the Father. Jesus knew his identity so securely that he didn't need the accolades of man, the prestige of man. It's why rejection may have hurt him, but rejection didn't stop him. See, we're not promised to be rock hard and immune from the pain and cares of this world. Jesus says we're going to drink of the cup of suffering. But see, what hurts us doesn't have to hinder us. It can actually help us. Because when you encounter the Lord in that place of brokenness, you actually begin to understand his heart so much more. Like anyone that has a close friend or a, a spouse or any kind of important relationship, man, it's not usually the good times that draw you close to each other. It's going through the hard times that actually allow you to see each other's heart. It's in that place of brokenness that you really, really understand what love is. And that's what happens with the Lord. And suddenly you come out of the valley with renewed faith. Suddenly you come out of the valley believing God. See, when Abraham got sent out to find a new land, I don't think he knew all that was to come. I don't think he factored in Egypt. I don't think he factored in all the ups and downs. You know, he, he was told, I'm going to multiply you and your descendants will be as the stars in the sky and as the sand upon the earth. That's a promise. But see, the Lord doesn't really fill in the gaps. I've noticed sometimes 
you know, the Lord will give you like the title page and then he'll give you like the end chapter. (laughs) And to us, we're like point A to point B, put it in the GPS. Let's go. Let's go. I'm there. All right. That sounds great. Yes, I will take that promise. Oh, I'll take that one, too. It's just like a big buffet line. You're just like, yes, Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Let's do it. And then suddenly you hit a detour and it feels like your GPS is just recalculating and you're driving around in circles. And you're like, God, like, hello, where are you? You know, you're refreshing the GPS and it's not talking. It's not saying anything useful. You can't figure out where anything is. Nothing's familiar. You're in this place you've never been in. You know, in the natural, we'd give up on that GPS. We'd be like, this thing's a piece of junk. (laughs) Got me lost, didn't get me where I wanted to go. But see, the Lord sometimes will purposefully conceal his plans. Because I think so often his promises are far better than what we interpret them to be. You know, it says in Ephesians, he's the God of exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask, think, or imagine. But we want to put him into a box of what we can ask, what we can think, and what we can imagine, and then we get upset when what we've asked, what we've sought, and what we've imagined isn't what's in front of us. But man, I bet you if the Israelites had seen the promised land with their own eyes and had seen the fullness of the splendor, I mean, can you imagine the spies that decided the promised land was too hard, seeing the splendor of Solomon's temple. Like, imagine that. Imagine them knowing that the king of glory was going to come walk the streets of that land. I bet you they would have been willing to fight for it. But see, the Lord wanted to test their hearts and decide Does fear have your heart or does love? Because when fear is at the root of a man or woman, their ultimate goal will be self-preservation. When love is at the heart of a man or a woman, God will be their ultimate goal and purpose. And it's easy to forget. You would think after going through a valley and encountering God in this way that, you know, we would never, ever, ever deal with fear again. But what I've found is that what happens is fear just goes in for a quick little wardrobe change. Puts on a new hat, new coat, and comes out and throws a little bit of a curveball at you. So maybe before it was about your job, it was about finances, it was about things in that realm and you've dealt with that and you're no longer afraid and you've encountered God as your provider and you trust him with your finances. Well, then fear comes in and says, well, let's live in what if land. What if you go down this path and you're so busy working that you never do anything else for the kingdom of God? What if you give your all into this thing that the Lord's asked you to do and you get really hurt? What if, what if, what if? 
What if you get your heart broken? What if you end up broke? What if your car breaks down? What if your job fires you? What if your church doesn't promote you? What if people don't recognize your giftings? What if you never get married? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And suddenly we've started to abide in the valley under the shadow of death and we're not dying physically but our soul is beginning to die because we're living in this place of brokenness and this place of fear and we're paralyzed because we're scared if we take a step forward we're going to step into that what if land. And fear wins again. But the reality is, if we actually looked at what if land through the lens of the kingdom, our response would be, what if I'm on the path of my greatest breakthrough yet? What if I'm actually going from glory to glory? What if all the promises of God are right around the corner? What if the next mountain is everything I've ever wanted and everything the Lord has promised me is about to come to pass? What if it's actually exceedingly abundantly above all that I've asked, thought, or imagined? What if it doesn't look like what I thought it would, but it's so much better? What if my plans for my life actually aren't the best things God has for me, but what if he has handpicked a plan and a destiny from the kingdom of heaven for me, and I'm actually on the path to find it out? What if the blood of Jesus has so wiped away my past that I'm free from it? What if my future is so bathed in glory that I'm not even going to recognize myself a year from now? What if tomorrow is the day I encounter Jesus in a fresh way and I never deal with fear again? What if that's the path I'm on? What if that became our language? What if that became our questions? Man, suddenly fear has no grip because we're so consumed with love. We're so in love with Jesus that nothing else can hold on to us. Nothing else can touch us. Because every time the enemy says, what if? We say, but what if he really loves me as much as he says he does? What if the cross really is enough? What if I'm blood bought, forgiven, set free, saved, and delivered, and the gospel is really true? <laughs> what if? What if, man? You know, the world would look at the martyrs. If you go back to the days of the early church, do you know the average lifespan of a new believer was three weeks? Three weeks from the time of saying yes to Jesus, most new believers were martyred. And that's the average, which means some lived longer, some lived shorter. And the world would say, what was the point? What's the point of a teenager dying at the age of 16? But what if he's under the throne right now? What if he's face to face with the king of glory and his eternal reward is so much better than anything he would have accomplished on the earth in his own strength? What if the gospel is really true and we're on our way to an eternal destination that's so much better than a life of luxury on earth but spending eternity in hell? What if? But see, we can't choose our what if until we choose our who, until we choose our why. Until he's your everything and his love is your why, you will always choose the what if of the enemy. You'll always live in the what if of fear. You'll abide in the valley of the shadow of death instead of abiding under the shadow of his wings. And that's where the enemy wants you, man. There's so many Christians that are paralyzed, living in the valley of the shadow of death. When the Lord didn't create them to live there, he created them to walk through it. Because again, the valley, one way in, one way out, which means you learn to walk the narrow way in the valley. 
because you're hemmed in on the left and on the right, and suddenly you don't have room to stray over here and look at this and stray over here and get distracted by this. You're one foot in front of the other in the valley. And then the Lord can trust you with the mountain because you're going to actually walk up the mountain on his path, not try to find your own path. Because see, a mountain's round, generally, which means there's a lot of paths up to the top. And the world wants to find all these other paths up to the top. But God says, clean hands and a pure heart. They shall ascend the hill of the Lord. But it's in the valley when all the gunk in your heart's actually rooted out and dealt with. It's in the valley when your cry becomes, oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. And see, Jesus walked through the valley, too. He understands the valley more than any of us actually do. misunderstood, despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. The very ones that he loved and died to save turned their faces away. And he hung there in the valley by himself. But he didn't stay there. Three days later, he rose. And the enemy realized that anyone that's blood-bought can't be bound in the valley of the shadow of death. Because when you truly encounter the freedom of the cross, you're no longer afraid of death because death is but a doorway into eternal bliss. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And in that place of understanding, in that place of encounter, man, fear has no hold. And so I'd challenge you tonight not to do better, but to look better. Turn your eyes from the things of this world. Turn your eyes from the cares, concerns, and worries. Turn your eyes from the shadows to him. Every time your eyes start to stray, get them back on him. Until all that can come out of your mouth is, oh, Jesus. We could just put on some pads. We're not really going to have a formal dismissal if you've got to go. Feel free to slip out, but I'd just like to, to give a few moments to just look at him.
Jesus, I pray that you would touch your people tonight. Let every bit of fear be eradicated. Even this fear of like never measuring up. to spend so much energy convincing convincing you you're never going to be enough. But really, you've always been enough because he says you are. So I pray that the weight of your worth would confront every fear, every insecurity, every bit of anxiety in each of you tonight. I pray just peace even over futures. It's okay to not know. It's okay to not be sure. Your job isn't actually to figure everything out. Your job is to just obey. And if you haven't heard the command for the next thing, all you have to do is be obedient to the last thing he said to you. The Lord hasn't forgotten his word and he hasn't forgotten his promises.